saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we have reached the letter M and to mark this momentous occasion we have a very special guest. My name is Tom Butler and as always I'm joined by the kick-ass Mr Brendan Duffy and the superior Mr Tom Wheatley. Hello guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and our guest That's, is... Well, no, normally you, you, you do those a lot more drawn out and uh, confusing, so that's, that's nice and succinct. I just Thanks. want to get straight to the uh, the, the meat of the, uh, <laughs> of the episode today. Our guest is the writer of Superman, Red Sun, The Ultimates, Civil War, Old Man Logan, and the creator of Kick-Ass, Kingsman, Wanted, Jupiter's Legacy, Super Crooks, much, much more, and also the excellent new spy comic, The King of Spies. It's Mr. Mark Miller. Welcome. Thanks very much. Good to good to see you guys. Well, yes, it's um, obviously very clear from, um, or it's clear to me at least from your back catalogue of work that you've got uh, a, a big interest in the world of espionage and, and James Bond. Is that is that fair to say, Mark? Yeah, I think it's. Uh, <clears throat> I was born in that amazing golden age where my formative films were really brilliant. You know, like it must be awful to have been born when, like, you know, Mannequin or. The cable guy or something like that, you know, is like the you know the first movie that you see in a cinema, you know. Like for me, it was it was the Spy Who Loved Me, it was Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman, more than anything for me, you know. And uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, it's like Jaws being the first uh, big film I ever really saw in a cinema. Um, so I was like so lucky. Um, and James Bond's uh, gave me a love of that genre forever but then equally sci-fi superheroes all these things I kind of love everything because my first experience of them was so great so lucky what was your first superhero movie and was it Superman the movie <clears throat> actually no the first thing I ever saw in a cinema was Spider-Man the movie in 1978 mm-hmm. right and it was just but Superman was out I think that Christmas and about six months before there was a Spider-Man movie which you guys might not remember but it was actually I found out years later the pilot for the Nicholas Hammond TV yes. show and uh, they released it in cinemas quite naughtily. And what they did was they released it on the Friday night that the Bill Bixby, Lou Ferrigno, Incredible Hulk was released on television. And uh, I, I was, it was like Sophie's Choice for children. You know, I was like, what do I do? Do I stay at home and watch the Hulk or do I go and see <laughs> Spider-Man in the cinema? And uh, I went to see Spider-Man. But my brother lied to me for years, right? And my brother said to me, oh, the Hulk was amazing. I was like, Spider-Man's the best film I've ever seen, right? And and he says to me, oh, it's nothing compared to the Hulk. He says, the Incredible Hulk had Spider-Man in it, and it had the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, everybody was in it. And I was like, oh, my God. Right? And I was like 25 before I found out he was lying because there was no IMDb back then. You know, you can tell. Yeah, I, I, they did that quite a lot with the Marvels, didn't they? they did a, I think they did a Captain America yeah. um, pilot film, which went on at the cinema. But yeah, much like the Spider-Man one, hasn't quite been remembered very fondly. <laughs> there, there are a couple of Captain America movies that nobody remembers, but there was one in the early 90s as well that, you know, J.D. Salinger, who wrote Catcher in the Rye, his yeah. son um, played Captain America. He was like uh, the big screen wow. Captain America. And he, he was I actually do, really I do good. remember that one, yeah, but good. I didn't know, I, I remember at the time, I probably didn't know J.D. Salinger was, so it wouldn't have been an interesting <laughs> fact. But yeah, I do remember my dad making me watch that film at some point. What I loved is that back then they would sometimes be really kind of specific about costume stuff. Sometimes they didn't care and they just, 
you know, they just did an approximation. And then sometimes they went too far and they couldn't get Captain America's costume right with the little ears sticking out because in the comic books they yes. had little ears sticking yeah. out. So they put fake ears on him in the movie. So when you're watching the film, you see J.D. Salinger's son with fake ears as Captain America. It's amazing. <laughs> well, that's that's my evening sorted after this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take it back to Bond then, Mark. Was The Spy Who Loved Me the one that you saw first at the cinema then, the first James Bond film? Yes, and, and it was one of those things where, a bit like Enter the Dragon or you, you know, The Omen or The Exorcist, you know, there's things that were talked about that you hadn't seen, you know, you were too young to see it yet. So Bond, I mean, it's crazy now when I talk to my children, they can't believe that you can't just call up anything that you want to watch, you know. So the idea that a Bond film being on a Bank Holiday Monday or something was an event, you had to wait till Bank Holiday Monday, and if you were out that afternoon, you didn't see it, you know. So like, um, So I had to wait. For bonds so it was quite i knew what it was i knew roughly what it was i knew it was a desirable thing like i had four older brothers and one older sister they loved james bonds and uh and so my first bond was like going to your first football match or something you know it was a big deal yeah that's that that's crops up quite a bit where the when the original bonds came out that people would often sort of have a weird mishmash of the ones that they'd seen mm. because it was just purely based on when they got around to seeing it if they when it was on tv but yeah, it must have been a really strange. Even before video players, you couldn't just. There's no way to see these films. Um, but they, I suppose they had the the double matinees, didn't they? And things where you could go and see the last Bond film and the current Bond film, so you could sort of catch up in the cinema. Well, see, I think I was maybe a twice a year cinema guy at that point, you know. So it was a real event to go. You know, I was I was seven when Spy Who Loved Me came out, and and I remember desiring the car before seeing the movie and then being obsessed with getting the car. I got three versions of it, like the medium size one, the big one. And the very small one as well, you know. So like, it was it was great because like Marvel UK was kind of starting about that time, so kids were getting into superheroes in my class. Kids became obsessed with Star Wars, and everybody had the Lotus Esprit, you know. Like, it was a it was a brilliant time because it was kind of like the way Pokemon was, I guess, twenty years later. Like, kids were stabbing each other in the playground for James Bond info <laughs> back then. You know? So what what did once you'd seen Spy Who Loved Me? Yeah. Did you just start collecting? stuff and anything Bond you were looking out for. Well, what was interesting is, you know, Roger Moore by that point is like 49 or 50 or something like this, you know, and like I started dressing like a middle-aged man, like when I was <laughs> when I was seven, right? So <laughs> I remember like my mum would always try and get me to wear my blazer to school and I'd be like, no, no, I'm not wearing a blazer, you know, and then as soon as I saw The Spy Who Loved Me, that was the closest approximation I had of a, a James Bond cool outfit, right? Because my blazer was black and my school trousers were black. So I was like, well, this is pretty cool. It's like a kind of Bond-style outfit. And I remember wearing a holster under my blazer and having a gun <laughs> in the holster and everything, you know. So, so I, I just totally get into it. But I really admired the fashions and everything of it as well. I just thought the look of it was so cool and everything. that I just, it, it, You look at it now and it looks like a Tory MP, you know. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen when I was seven. Was there anything in particular in the film apart from the car that really stood out to you when you saw it? Something that really captured your attention? Well, again, it's that thing everybody talks about where the first Bond you see is special, right? So you always kind of think of it as better than, than it was. You know, like everybody's era of music, everybody proclaims was the greatest era of music and everything, you know? Um, so I'm always careful not to fall into that trap. But, but Spy Who Loved Me is quite a special one, isn't it? I think there's something... Mm. Like the stars really aligned there, you know, like they really figured out how to do these things again, you know, like there's going you know, to be a couple of slightly wonky ones, um, yeah. you know, in the previous 10 years, um, but they just kind of nailed it. They're a great director, really good screenplay, a brilliant baddie, two brilliant baddies, you know, they the great henchman and also the great Bond villain as well, a great headquarters, you know, with the, the, the idea of a sea headquarters just seems so outrageous, you know, you're getting into real comic book stuff then. Um, so, uh, you know, there was loads of stuff to act out as well. Like, there was great set pieces. And I'd never seen From Russia We Love at that point, so the idea of the fight on the train felt incredibly fresh to me. So my friends and I, we would we would act it out quite a lot in our houses. Like, regularly, it became a kind of thing where we would use a lamp in a toy <laughs> fight that you were having with your friends, pretend you electrocuted your friends, and then kick him out of a lower floor window in his house into the garden, you know? And it was like stuntmen, you know, you would sit and work all this stuff out ahead of time and say, right, I'm gonna kick you, I'm gonna electrocute you, then I'm gonna kick you, and you're going out the back window and you'd set up something for him to fall on and everything, you know? So I don't know, would you do that with Tomorrow Never Dies? I don't, probably not, <laughs> I don't know. But, so Spy, Spy Who Loved Me really had a lot of magic in it, I think. And Roger Moore in his absolute prime as well. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a good thing to start on Spy Love Me or a bad thing because 
there's a few that you could probably watch after the spy love me and go oh so they're not quite as good as as the spy love me i would think uh one of one of butler's ideas is that you start on a bad one and then it's all the only way is up <laughs> um but how, how did you find the um what, what what did you watch after that did you did you enjoy it as much or or was it well remember i had one? to wait till the next bank holiday monday so i think the next bank holiday monday i think had another good one at goldfinger um, oh, you know, wow. so and then after Goldfinger, I think it was uh, Doctor No, and then I think You Only Live Twice. So I think I, I saw them in that sort of order. Then I get into the the, the more Roger Moore ones again. So um, I was really lucky that all the first ones I saw were good. So I'm actually quite careful when I show my children. I've got three kids, and I try and get them like every dad. You know, I try and get them into all the things I love, but I, I curate it very carefully. So the first Bond I showed them was The Spy Who Loved Me, which they loved. Then I did Goldfinger, you know, and I, and I pretty much showed it in the order that I watched these things. And it made them so into it that then they could sit through ones that maybe weren't as good because mm-hmm. I'd built up enough cultural reserves. You know, there was enough love in their heart for Bond <laughs> by that point. But I'll yeah. tell you something, yeah, yeah. this will blow your mind, right? This will blow your mind. Like my, my 10-year-old daughter, she was nine when I showed her um, maybe five Bonds in a row, right? And I flipped between Roger Moore and Sean Connery, just going back and forward, basically showing in order the ones that I thought were best to worst. And uh, she didn't realize it was a different person until I pointed it out. Wow. And she's really clever, right? So it's not as if she's she's that, right? But, but she she was like, oh my gosh, you're right, you know? And she looked, she froze it, and she went, yeah, this is a different guy. Because to her, it was just James Bond. And, and those two guys don't look anything like each other, but she bought into it so much. But what, what's really fascinating is I love watching it through children's eyes. As she said to me, we, when we watch Goldfinger, Bond gets off with four different girls in Goldfinger, right? So like um, at the beginning, she's watching it, he gets off with somebody in the pre-credits, and then he gets off with somebody else, and she, she looked confused, and she said, I thought his wife was uh, that girl with the brown hair. And I was like, all oh, right, that was just a, that was just a, a girl he, he, he saw briefly. And then by the time it got to the fourth one, which was on a Blackman, she said to me, how many wives does James Bond have? Which I thought was such a, <laughs> <laughs> such a great perspective on it. He's got many. He has got many. A lot of wives. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think, Mark, um, would you say is the, is the appeal of Bond generally? I've got a theory about this, right? And I think it's um, similar to... The superheroes, I guess, with um, American culture, is that Bond. There's been spies for a long time, you know, in, in fiction. You know, going back into the 19th century, you know, there's a lot of these type of characters. But detectives and spies and everything, you know, they've been around for a long time. But Bond, I think, just came along when Britain had lost its empire. You know, so Britain had lost its role in the world. It it, it lost its its. Uh, it lost its swagger a little bit, you know, and then somebody comes in dressing like the perfect gentleman with a great haircut and, you know, the coolest cars directed by British guys, written by British guys and everything, you know, and, and kind of starring British guys. And it actually made people feel good about the fact we'd lost everything, <laughs> you know? So I think, I think it's the same as the, the reason superheroes are so big right now is because America is acutely aware that in the last 10, 20 years of their empire, you know, they're starting to eat themselves culturally, you know, um, and, and and it's a hard thing to watch. Um, and I think that superheroes make you feel better because it's the ultimate aspiration of Americans, isn't it? You know, the superhero, Superman even looks like the flag and he's the perfect immigrant success story, isn't he? A guy from another place making it work in Metropolis. And I think James Bond is that for us and we love it so much it became contagious and everybody <laughs> around the world loves it too let's let's um go for a simple question mark and you probably knew we were going to ask you this one have you got a favorite bond actor well it's funny because the scottish side of me of course should say sean connery but it's not sean connery <laughs> <laughs> and and i think it's like doctor who isn't it you know people's favorite doctor who is the first one that they saw and for me, I think Roger Moore is James Bond. When I see Roger Moore, I think of, he looks like James Bond to me. And Sean Connery, I love. I, I love Piers Brosnan as well. I, I love Timothy Dalton. You know, I mean, I, I think all the Bonds have been really good in their own way. But Roger Moore, he just ticks every box for me. But here's my thing where I, I feel good about seeing Roger Moore. A pal of mine who's American had never, he's 48, he'd only ever seen the Daniel Craig Bonds. He'd never seen any other Bonds. 
And he's a big mm. movie fan. He's a big genre fan and everything, but he never watched the Bond films. He said he never felt they were for him. I said, look, give them a try. And he actually started and worked his way through all the Bonds. And I said, right, who's your favourite? He said, hands down, Roger Moore. I said, Roger Moore's amazing. <laughs> and he's not, yeah. he's not coming with any nostalgia or anything like that. He said, that guy's brilliant. He's perfect as Bond. He's funny. I believe him in the fights. I believe him in the love scenes. You know, he's, he's great. Did he, did he do it in order? So he did, did all the Sean Connerys first? I think he actually mixed them up. I think he mixed them up, you know, because um, he'd seen the Daniel Craigs and he was kind of mixing them, them around. He surprised me. He had some kind of weird zigzaggy kind of way of watching them. And uh, so, but he said they were really satisfying. He really enjoyed this. They really stood up brilliantly. I think his movies, because I watch them quite regularly, you know, um, I think his movies, though, the Connery ones are quite hard to beat. I think structurally, in terms of direction, acting you know I, I think Connery's are actually technically better than Moore's Moore's got a few that are a little uneven you know but his yeah. personal charm I think carries the movies so so well yes he's definitely uh the driving force isn't he we often talk about the Connery ones being able to exist in their own on their own mm-hmm. without being part of the Bond thing especially something like From Russia With Love which is just a great espionage film in its own right yeah but the Roger Moore films are a little bit trickier because you need to understand the story you know, you see J.W. Pepper pop up in uh, in the which is the second film he's in. Man, we've gone good. Yeah, yeah. Um, you kind of need a context for that, don't yeah. you, to understand what's going on with that? But yeah, it's Sean Connery's ones. Yeah, we often say that they're really good in, in on their own. Yeah, and I, I love that. You know, I love the self-contained movie. I mean, I think that's a real weakness in the the Daniel Craig ones, the fact that they all tie mm. together. And like, mm. I mean, when I went to see the last one, I couldn't even remember stuff because it was like from fifteen years before, and and they're not very rewatchable. You know, like Bank Holiday Monday, you're never sitting down and saying, oh, Quantum of Soul is brilliant, you know. It's like, <laughs> you know? So if you were to put a Bond film on, which one would it be? Spy, oh, Spy Who Loved Me. Spy Who Loved Me Spy and Goldfinger, I think, are the two gold standards. Right. You know, they're, they're brilliant. Are oh, you but in good also, company, I, Mark? Yeah, but I, I do have a real soft spot for Brosnan and Dalton as well, though. You know, like, I feel Dalton was shortchanged slightly. Like his movie's budgets were funny and all that kind of stuff you know like he could have been a really great bond and pierce brosnan is so damn likable you know like goldeneye is a great bond fan great bond well you brendan's the world's biggest brosnan fan so uh, <laughs> he's, he's nodding there very excited well, how, how old are you brendan 35 so brosnan's your bond then isn't he yeah he's my bond yeah he, and goldeneye he's bond for is all of us i think yeah yeah he's not my bond <laughs> but he was the first thing we saw in the cinema right yeah, yeah, but I, I, I'd watched all the Bonds up until that point before. Then it wasn't like an entry point for me, so I was already sort of associated with him. He's definitely, you know, I, I remember the excitement of going to the cinema to see him, but um, I think I still had a bit of a problem accepting him after being a big fan of Connery for so long. So you, you saw Bond on TV before you saw it in the cinema. Yeah, my dad is a massive Bond fan. So yeah. before, the, the only one I had the opportunity to see was, was Goldeneye because before then I was too young yeah. to see any of them in the cinema. So, um, and the big gap, I, of course, yeah, before it'd been out of cinemas for a long time, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and even if you were just about old enough to be allowed to see um, the Dalton ones, you probably wouldn't or your parents wouldn't yeah. want you to well, watch them because they were a little bit yeah um, but license to kill had the 15 rating as well didn't it and we would have been yes. uh yeah. seven or eight at that eight at yeah. that point so we'd really had missed out a big chunk of uh time at, of bond at the cinema but my first was was yeah. golden eye and uh for that reason i hold it very close to my uh close to my heart but um I would say that that is a great Bond film like the spy who loved me is a great Bond film in that it really hits the formula really mm. nice in a in a way that the, the film just sings with it um we struggle to pick holes in golden eye don't we yeah <laughs> some that we don't struggle to pick holes and, in. One and we haven't done the spy without. who loved me yet so yeah. i think we'll find the yeah. same with that one I, I i there's one scene i could live without though and it's the die hard thing you know because we'd just seen it in die hard too that strapping yourself into the ejector seat and getting out of the plane yeah and i remember being like, oh you know that I've, I've seen that before and that's just my one complaint i've got a second complaint with golden eye though and it's personal. And what it was was, I don't. I went to see it in Glasgow, and there was a French guy. You never, you never see French people in Glasgow. But there was a French guy behind me who was telling somebody with him what was happening all the way through the film. Right, so he was like, Bond is standing on the edge of a reservoir, you know, and 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 he was describing everything that was happening, you know, all the way through the film, and it says. Sean Bean is still alive. You know, it's things like that. He was giving a complete running commentary to make a guy he was with. I don't know if the guy was blind or something that he was with, but 
<laughs> it's, it's kind of weird yeah. watching the film now without this guy in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> So you grew up with uh, with the Roger um, so with the Roger Moore films, Mark. Yeah. But then, um, as you grew up and became, you know, an adult, did you follow the Bond films from there? Going to the cinema to see everyone? Uh, no, I didn't actually. I, I I went to see. You know, that weird age where your family takes you to the cinema, and then you're paying yourself. And there's a little yeah. window where you're about fifteen, where your family are not taking you to the cinema, but you're a little bit too young. You don't have the money to go yourself. So I missed Octopussy, um, and this mm-hmm. is the weirdest thing. My my daughter, my oldest daughter's boyfriend, is like the biggest James Bond fan in the world. And at Christmas dinner, we were sitting chatting about Bond, right? And like uh, he said to me, well, you know, it, it was actually fascinating to see an Indian backdrop in a Bond film because we'd never seen anything like that before. And it was actually a full year before Indiana Jones was in India. You know, so Bond's which normally follows cultural trends, was actually kind of setting it unusually, you know, like a, a year ahead, instead of following Jaws or following Star Wars or following Kung Fu movies or whatever. And I was like, I, I, don't, remember, uh, I don't remember an Indian backdrop. What? And I'd obviously heard of Octopussy a million times, but for some reason it had slipped through my viewing and I'd never seen it. So Christmas night he said to me, we need to, we need to watch this, you know. So I downloaded it. And I watched a vintage Roger Moore James Bond film, a good one as well, that I'd never seen. So it was like a gift. It was like it was like finding Superman two and a half, you know, or a, <laughs> an, an Indiana Jones film from nineteen eighty six or something. You know, it was it was actually amazing. It was like a perfect time capsule that was. I'd never seen a single scene from the movie, and uh, wow. and I just ate it up. It was brilliant. And you're a big fan of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was great. I mean, I, action is obviously directed in a slightly different way now, you know, but um, so you're not, it doesn't have the pulse racing thing that it would have had if I'd seen it in 1983, you know, but like, mm-hmm. um, but it really stands up. It's a good film. It's a really good film. Louis Jordan's a great bad guy and everything as well. So it's, it's one of the good ones. I remember Wheatley, we were a bit obsessed with that one because of Roger Moore's stunt double on the train. Looks nothing like <laughs> the ginger him. one. <laughs> the ginger one. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, you find this a lot with uh, Bond films nowadays. You, well, a lot of films, but probably more so with Bonds. That when you when you watch them on a big HD TV, yeah, you start to spot things and go, they they really didn't plan to be on HD. <laughs> John Steed is my favourite like that as well because by the time the Avengers has been made, the new Avengers especially, you know, like he's in his fifties pushing 60 yeah. and the guy doing the stunts is about 25 you know and it's uh, for some reason it adds to the experience for me i kind of like it when a slightly bloated guy becomes a skinny guy for the fight and then becomes the bloated guy for the close-ups again. <laughs> I, I associate roger moore bond films with the weird stunt guys they get into them it's, it's just part and parcel of it. <laughs> yeah. it there is a charm to that isn't there mark have you seen the photo of christopher reeve on the set of octopussy well, see, this this has actually haunted me my whole life because you've got Christopher Reeve with his Superman 3 haircut, which is yeah. that slicked back hair, which I think is a wig, actually. Um, and then you get Roger Moore as a clown, right? And I was like, what the yes. hell is this? <laughs> and I, I thought it was like, I thought it was some deleted scene from a Bond film. Because I was convinced I'd seen Octopussy. And then when I watched it, it was like my life all fell into place. Everything That was my rosebud. <laughs> but I was like, okay, now I understand why, <laughs> why Roger Moore was a clown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting outfits in uh, in Octopussy. <laughs> Memorable. So, so you hadn't seen Octopussy, and then did you follow on and see the um, the the Pierce Brosnan era through? Um, sorry, the oh, Timothy yeah, Dalton yeah. and then Pierce Brosnan, and yeah, very exciting when Timothy Dalton got to be Bond. Like it, it was a real cultural event. You know, there's a new Bond and a new Doctor Who kind of makes the news. You know, so I remember news at ten when I was about sixteen showed you some footage of a stunt from uh, Living Daylights. And there was a little bit of an interview with uh, Timothy Dalton, who I'd obviously seen in Flash Gordon as well, you know, so so it's kind of really exciting. You're like, oh, here's the new Bond. And it was it was a, it's the first time I'd ever seen a, a new Bond coming in, because Roger Moore, I was so young when he, he became Bond. So it really felt like a big deal. It was like Channel 4 or Channel 5 luncheon, you know, it felt like a, a mass event everybody was talking about. And I was quite unaware of how it wasn't a big deal cinematically. Like, it didn't do that well because everybody I knew really, I mean, they were just the perfect age. They were really excited about it. There was a new James Bond. 
And we were quite surprised and disappointed when License to Kill was the last one for a long time. We were like, what the hell happened to Bond? Because there was no internet to check box office mojo and find out something hadn't really worked. Do you do you remember when the announcement was made for Timothy Dalton? Were people, you know, like with Daniel Craig, him coming in, yeah. there was a lot of people who didn't want him to come in. Was that the case with Timothy? No, very, very, very exciting. And actually, it was very interesting, that especially like women who were about 10 years older than me, like I was about 16, 17, and women in their late 20s that I knew and my family and, and friends, they were really excited. They loved Timothy Dalton. It was like he was the most mm-hmm. handsome guy to play James Bond. I mean, they, they loved the idea of him. He was a, he was a, so I thought he was going to be mega, you know. But the big thing everybody said was after seeing the movie is it wasn't funny enough and they couldn't land the jokes. Um, yeah. But I, I, I do also think that what makes something work sometimes when you recast a character is to go in a different direction. So I think, for example, you know, Roger Moore following Sean Connery is perfect because it's light and shade. You know, you've got a very different way of playing it. And then to go Timothy Dalton was the correct choice, I think, to go a little bit more serious. You know, and then you've got the lightness again with Piers Brosnan, but he he can deliver a joke. He's he's really good at it. So you've got a Shakespearean actor followed by a guy who can do a quip, you know. Um, And that's why I think somebody like Henry Cavill or somebody would be good now because he's got the light touch. You know, he's got a likability. He doesn't look like a squaddy or a tough guy or anything, but you believe him in those scenes, but kind of like Roger Moore, I think he'd bring the lightness a touch. That's why I think Batman's casting is, is quite weird because we're seeing the same take over and over again. It's like, imagine Sean Connery had been followed by somebody kind of like Sean Connery, who was then followed by somebody kind of like him. And I think that's what's a bit weird with Batman because we've seen the same, like Michael Keaton was really interesting because he was nothing like Adam West. But then everything yeah. since is just a darker and more shadowy Batman. Whereas coming in with a light Batman again could be really interesting if it's done right. So you're thinking a, a light comedian for the next Bond? I wouldn't go as far as a comedian, but a guy that can land the joke. You know, like Daniel Craig is a mm. brilliant actor, but he looks in physical pain when he's delivering the gags, doesn't he? It's like, it's, <laughs> he's, yes. it's so against. And, uh, you know, it's so unfair on him because he's he was Bond for a very long time. I mean, he was Bond in, in time terms, the equivalent of Doctor No all the way up to like Moonraker or something, wasn't it? I mean, it was a preposterous amount of time. It's the longest term, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and cultural trends change in that time. But So he had to kind of provide a continuity because all these films were interlinked, but at the same time, kind of update it a little bit. you know. So so by the time of the third or fourth one, you, people were wanting a gag. They didn't want it to be like Jason Bourne, but he was still unfortunately trapped in being Jason Bourne Bond, wasn't it? Yeah, because he was, he was in that, that arc, so yeah. he, he couldn't really wriggle free. Yes, it, it would have been a very weird, yeah, change of tone, wouldn't it, if they had gone for something a bit lighter? You'd have to be kind of the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd love to have seen that, just the look on his face. <laughs> but you just you have to recast if you're doing a new tone. You have to recast the thing because yeah. you you just don't buy it. There's something like when when he was making those gags, Inspector, I think it was. You know, it, it, it just felt really odd. But it had a wee moments where it felt like a Carry On film. Uh, it, yeah. it was really tonally odd. It, it, they they sort of do that a bit with Roger towards the few uh, few eyes only mm-hmm. um, film where the, his tone they do try and change it a bit they try and make him a little bit grittier they don't stick with it the yeah, whole film yeah. but I think I've watched that film sometimes and just at points thought this doesn't seem quite right yeah. it's, 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 his 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 tone's changed I think he does that they gave up towards the end and just go back to normal Roger but um, <laughs> yeah there's definitely you have to stick with it it's quite jarring when it doesn't quite doesn't quite fit. Well, you just want to see Roger Moore be Roger Moore, don't you? And it's funny seeing him in anything else. I watched The Wild Geese again quite recently, mm. and it's it's so weird seeing Roger Moore like murdering a drug dealer and things like that. You know, yeah. but oh, yeah. it, it can be really exciting as well. You know, it can really work if he's part of an ensemble. But um, but it's, it's, it was hard for him to escape being Roger Moore. Like it's hard for David Niven to not be David Niven or Cary Grant. Yeah. Have you seen The Man Who Haunted Himself, Mark? I the, love um, The Man Who Haunted Himself. It's Roger Moore's yeah. own personal favourite movie yeah. ever made, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That's, That's what he film. said, yeah. I, I, I watched that years ago. I remember I, I went through a bit of a mad stage of just buying any Roger Moore yeah. film and sitting and watching them. But at that point, I, I thought, oh, I, I love Bond. I, I've seen Cannibal Run. I want to see some more <laughs> funny Roger Moore films and watch that. And I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I was thinking, when's, when's, when's the joke coming? <laughs> I did that with Deliverance, you know, the, the Burt Reynolds movie, Deliverance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I remember <laughs> after Superman, after Superman, 
Um, I was obsessed with Superman, right? So I, I watched every movie that every actor in Superman made, or even things like the costume designer, you know, like I would track yeah. down films she'd made and things like that, you know, just anything to do with Superman I would watch. So Ned Beatty was a, was played Otis, obviously, in Superman. Yeah. I was like, what else has he done? So then I saw Deliverance and I was like, oh, I need to get that out of the video shop. That's going to be amazing. And it was like, it haunted me for life. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you didn't watch that one with your parents. That's quite a, <laughs> quite a bleak movie, that one. <laughs> but Roger Moore, I know what you mean. And, and anything to do with Roger Moore, I, I just get into. And he appeared in Glasgow about a year before he died. He appeared, uh, that national tour he was doing. I'm sure you guys yes. went along to it. And yeah. I went with five of my friends and we kept looking around at each other. And, you know, a couple of us are in the film business and worked with Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie and all this kind of thing. But Roger Moore being on stage, we kept leaning forward and saying to each other, can you believe we're in the same room as Roger? This is amazing. Yeah. You know? Did he, he was talking to, when we saw it, he was just talking to the audience and just, just completely relaxed, yeah. just enjoying it. It was amazing to see. It's, um, yeah, he's one of those people where he's almost, he's so approachable yeah. and so likeable. Yeah. But you also don't almost don't see him as a real person, yeah. Because he's so, you know, so high up there. But um, yeah, it was phenomenal to see. But what I loved as well is he was at an age where he doesn't care anymore about what he says, yes. and also from a generation of people who don't care as well. So he was eighty nine at the time, I think. And I yeah. loved the non PC ness of it all. You know, just yeah. anything he wanted to say. <laughs> if it was funny, he just said it. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, yeah. But also, yeah, that he had such. Um, he would never be mean about anyone. It was he would never punch down. Um, I remember yes. when we. He obviously didn't have a very good relationship with Grace Jones on on a view to a kill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think his quote about her is is when he's asked about her, he always says, "You know, my mum always said never. If you've got nothing nice to say about something, someone." don't say it so I'll not say anything <laughs> that's how he would just deal with it and then and then move on but yeah what an experience to see him so you never got to meet him personally Mark no but Matthew Vaughan who directed Kingsman had this really cool idea and Sean Connery was still alive Roger Moore was alive and his idea was to do a promotional teaser um, for Kingsman where you had all the previous Bonds together all having a toast around the table kind of thing you know and talking mm-hmm. about a new generation of spies and he had this really cool little idea and we actually had a, a link to everybody. We had like Roger Moore, I think was good friends with somebody Matthew knew, I can't remember who it was. Colin uh, Colin Firth was friendly with Brosnan. And uh, Matthew knew Daniel Craig from Layer Cake and everything, you know, and somebody knew Lazenby. And the idea was we, we kind of had all of them. And I think we actually had a slightly provisional yes, according to Matthew, I don't know if this is true, but we had a provisional yes from everyone and we were trying to get Connery. And he tried to get me to get Connery because I was Scottish. And, uh, <laughs> and, and as it turns out, we, we did have a mutual friend. We did have a mutual friend. And although I didn't know him, you know, I called up my mutual friend and he phoned ahead. But Connery was quite ill by that point. And the, we were told, like, OK, this, this just can't happen. And then I said, look, yeah. why don't we do what they did in the 60s and just get Neil Connery, his brother, and just use him if we can use <laughs> <laughs> But it would have been so cool. I mean, that would have been great just to see those guys actually standing together in real life. It would have been oh, absolutely yeah. massive as well. Mm. As, a, so as a teaser. Yeah. And you could have shot yeah. it in an hour. You know, you could have had them all just standing around a table. And the idea was they, they have this Kingsman whiskey that they, they toast, you know, and then the camera pans around and you see Colin, you know, and it's the, or, or, or Taran, I can't remember who it was going to be. Um, and it was just the next generation of super spies. Without yeah, and it would have really annoyed the broccolis, which would have been all the <laughs> <laughs> Well, you still see that picture all the time where it was, it's Brosnan, Roger, and is it Timothy? And Dalton. Oh, yes. Yeah. With yeah. the beard and everything he's got. The yeah, beard. yeah. It's, it's such a famous picture because yeah. you look at it and think, oh, imagine being there and having a drink with them. That would have been fantastic. But the worst idea in the world, though, was that rumor that was kicking about around about the Lee Tamahori time, but it props up occasionally is the idea of making all the Bond movies in continuity and. There's a guy who takes on the role of James Bond instead of 007. Yeah. So they can all appear in one movie, which, you know, like every five years, somebody touts that, don't they? Yeah. The James well, Bond verse. Yeah. Be another 20 years and that, that, they'll all get made at some point. Well, the thing is, all those guys one by one are passing away, you know, so that does stop it, I guess, doesn't it? You know, the, yes, they probably yeah, missed the window. It a bit. I mean, it'll just be, yeah. it'll be Brosnan and Craig, really, once it? They'll be the, the, the last two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting segue, actually, Mark. Good, good, good opening to talk about King of Spies because I know when the when the artwork for King of Spies sort of first hit the web, everyone just yeah. said, "Well, that's Pierce Brosnan," 
um, because he had the beard and yeah. it's an old spy. Was was that any, was that a deliberate input? Or was that just co- coincidental? Do you know? Funnily enough, years ago, um, Ridley Scott called me up and he asked me if I would be interested in being one of ten young directors to shoot a fifteen-minute short. That, and and I came up with two ideas, right? And he said you to write and direct. And I was like, I'd never directed anything. And he said, I think you'd be quite good at it because you're quite visual, you know. And he said um, the budget was something like a hundred thousand dollars or something, like a very small budget. So try and make it work and try and come up with something quite cool. And I had the idea of doing something actually with Timothy Dalton. I thought I knew Dalton was a, a quite a you know a, a proper thesp and everything, you know. And I thought it'd be quite cool just to have a, you know, like Alan, Alan Bennett's Talking Heads? Like, mm. and it'd be really cheap to do. You could just basically give the whole hundred grand to Dalton for coming in for two hours, you know, and doing a 15-minute monologue, like sitting in a gentleman's club talking about his time as Britain's greatest spy and looking around at London now and being disappointed. Is this what you fought for? And so I had this idea then, actually, for, for Dalton. Um, but, um, you know, Brosnan would obviously be perfect. I mean, he's, he's the character is exactly Brosnan's age. Physically, he looks so like him. And I actually think we've moved on from retro 80s into retro 90s now, although cinema hasn't quite caught up with that yet, you know. But that's the next cultural trend, isn't it? You know, like the 80s guys have shuffled on. You know, it's not that exciting to see Arnie or Sly or Bruce Willis so much anymore as a as a retro thing you want to see those 90s guys i think now a little bit you know and this is it's the kevin costner's and all that and yellowstone and everything that's kind of quite exciting so i think brosnan is so perfect for this he's so perfect so we've been we've been developing it with literally my favorite writer um doing the screenplay for it you know who's who's amazing and that's who we both want Wow! yeah it's it's, it's fantastic um we've, we've we've been chatting about it quite a bit oh you're ready yeah? Mm-hmm. yes oh, cool, yeah yeah cool. Yeah, yeah, really nice. But we, we were we were just talking about Brosnan being absolutely perfect, perfect for the role. And I think Bro- Brosnan, I feel, never got his um, his his unforgiven, you know, or whatever, you know. He never like he's so, he's so beloved, and I think he went out on a bit of a a low for Bond as well, which was so unfair yes. because I think he was brilliant. And there was always the rumor, wasn't there? I mean, I, I would read this stuff, be so excited that Quentin Tarantino and Brosnan had had dinner. And Tar- I don't know if you guys have heard this, you know, that Tarantino was going to do Casino Royale and it was going to be yeah. Brosnan and everything. Yeah. And I was like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And I feel he was cheated out of his last super spy story. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to get Brosnan in for that one last job? Yeah, we we often talk, uh, um, Brendan's got this dream that he's going to come back and they're going to do like a, a, a retro Bond series where it's all Brosnan. He, he's it's, out, out it's, of retirement. Pinning all his hopes on. Mm. Well, that's King's, but this, um, King's Bad. But yeah, exactly. Right? And so this would be the absolute dream. if you know. Brosnan with a nice suit, a grey beard, holding a gun, standing with London behind him. You're like, okay, I'm in. I'm in. Well, yeah. I, I don't know if you saw, Mark, before we were recording, I've got a poster of Logan on my wall. That that wasn't tactically placed here. But that's the that picture of um, uh, Hugh Jackman with the suit and with the, with the claws. I can just see it with Piers Brosnan and the guns yeah. and the old man Bond. Yeah. And it's funny that, like, you know, you obviously... You, were behind old man logan that then became the movie logan yeah. it just yeah. feels like it's the perfect opportunity for them to do this but um i guess for you it wouldn't be affiliated with bond um it would be in tribute to bond i guess wouldn't it yeah but kind of like um you know you have bill money as as a sort of analog isn't it of the man with no name um and mm. unforgiven you know you you loved this guy 20 years ago and here he is for one last adventure it's like that's it's such a classic trope, you know, like Rooster Cogburn is every John Wayne character you ever loved as an old man where he's lost his eye and everything, you know. So, like, um, so I think even as a teenager, you love that stuff. I don't know why it's so powerful, but to see somebody who used to be a hero picking up a gun again and doing one last job, even when I was 16, I loved that. When I saw Batman, um, yeah. Frank Miller's book, The Dark Knight Returns, where it was like Adam West Batman 20 years on and here he is as this big, fat 50-year-old guy and everything, you know. <laughs> It was uh, yeah. even as a sixteen-year-old, it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So I was going to ask you about that with uh, Old Man Logan. What the response from the comic community mm-hmm. was? It much like you know everybody, all the young young comic fans loved it as much as the older fans. Oh my god! I mean, mainly the younger ones. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, co- comic fans. Um, historically used to have a turnover every three years or so you know it was always new people coming in 
But you do find it's more long-term people now like me, you know, people who grew up in the 80s and everything still reading comics. But when you go to a convention, it's 90%, you know, people under 30, really, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a younger crowd. Um, but Old Man Logan is the biggest selling Wolverine graphic novel ever, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it did really, I, think it's, I think it's Marvel's number two graphic novel ever, you know. So, so it really works with, with young people, you know. It's, it seems That's like interesting because when um, No Time to Die came out, mm-hmm. I, I, I was skeptical because back in the, you know, the Roger Moore days yeah. and the Sean Connery days, alt actors, pin up actors were older. Yeah. They're, they're like, there weren't loads of young actors around. So, I, I was when, when no time. Uh, well, when the Casino Royale came out, he was still a little bit older then. I was thinking, was was the world? Did the world want older actors in those in those sort of roles, or is it going to be the older fan base that loves them and the younger people don't watch them? But it's clearly not the case with um, the latest Bond films. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I mean, somebody was telling me sort of the tracking on Tom Cruise's new movie. You know, the the Top Gun sequel, and the tracking suggests that it may be Tom Cruise's biggest movie ever you know and you think he was the biggest star of the 80s 90s noughties and the teenies or whatever it's called um and he uh this could be his biggest as he hits 60 which is just so yeah. crazy isn't it but then i guess 20 years ago movie stars were replaced by corporate brands possibly yeah. quite intentionally i think it was a couple of things one of them is social media and the internet i guess in general made us see celebrities 24 7 so they seem much less interesting Whereas they could control how you saw Spider-Man or control how you saw Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, you know? So, um, but, yes. but they were the last generation of movie stars, weren't they? Those 90s guys. The, the, yeah. There isn't really anybody since that can open a movie the way Pitt or Cruz or Will Smith or those guys could do. King of Spies, then, you, you sort of suggested that it's being developed already um, for the screen. Is that um, with with Netflix? And are you thinking uh, a feature film or series? Or is it not got that far yet? Well, it's funny, actually. What I used to do was I used to write a comic book and then turn it into a film. You know, so I'd take it to friends or to studios or whatever, you know, and, and we'd make it into a movie. But I sold my company, Mellow Worlds, about four years ago to Netflix. Um, so now I'm a Netflix executive, you know, so what I do is I create the stuff in-house. So I'm president of the Miller World division within Netflix, you know. So what I do is I, once I sold the company, I, I, I did a deal where I stayed on also as, a, as an executive. And I would create new properties as movies and TV shows, but also do them as comics. So it's kind of the reverse now, you know, like I, I create them as a show or as a, as a movie. But because I love doing comics so much, Netflix aren't bothered either way you know but i i say look i love i love comics do you mind if i do a four issue series of this or whatever um so the comic actually comes second so we've been making the television show for longer than the comic um has been out there so it's not an adaptation it's actually almost an adaptation of a television show the comic book and is is there a lot of those you're working on at the moment yeah yeah um... i mean when i sold the company there was 17 franchises um kingsman and kick-ass I left out of it just to make things not complicated for Matthew Vaughn, you know, because he's a good pal of mine. So we, yeah. we have that, we still own that, and it's a distinct entity. But the other 17 franchises that was within Miller was sold to Netflix. And then um, I've maybe since then created six things, I think. So there's Magic Order, Space Bandits, Sharky the Bounty Hunter, Prodigy, King of Spies, uh, and I think something else. And, and we're working on all of those things uh, at the same time as doing the adaptations of the television, uh, of the comic books. So it's, it's really weird. I mean, there's a crazy amount of stuff. We're, we're doing about seven TV shows and three movies all simultaneously, you know, so it's, it's a lot of work. So you think wow. this one is a, is, a, is a limited series, do you think, then? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's certainly the way it's being developed. You know, like, uh, I mean, I, I originally intended it as a feature, actually, because um, it was a nice three-act structure. But the writer that we got in, who I, I mean, it was me who wanted him. He's an absolute genius. He was like, no, no, I think there's a lot we can explore here. You know, this this feels like a good solid six hours to me. And there's a lot of background stuff we can go into and everything. And we could go a little deeper. Um, and he's, you know, the scripts are brilliant. So have you made contact with Brosnan? No, I think we're going to um, we're gonna <laughs> get the scripts all finalised and as good as they can possibly be. And then then go to Brosnan now. Because <laughs> so like, I mean, He must be aware. He, well, people keep copying them into tweets mm, and things I've like seen, that, yeah. so I'm sure he's seen it. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I, I adore Brosnan. You know, I mean, if this could lead to a pint with Brosnan, I'd be happy with that. You know? 
<laughs> well, if, even if he if he wasn't going to be involved, it's very exciting prospect. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's, look, it lends itself very nicely to a very exciting um, format. There's a very small number of people that could play Britain's retired greatest ever super spy. You know, like. Yeah. You could probably do Hugh Jackman, but he's done Logan. You know, Australians can pull it off as well, can't they? Like, you can mm-hmm. get away with Australians and New Zealanders, but you couldn't get an American playing this part. You know, because somebody suggested an American actor, and it just it feels like you know that Jimmy Bond's pilot they made in the fifties. It feels yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were saying um, Clive Owen because he was the you know he was the guy that. Uh, Famously, didn't get it when Daniel Craig got it. He yeah. would be a good fit, possibly. Possibly a bit too young, but um, there's a lot of nearly bonds, isn't there? You know, but I, yeah. I think you probably have to be in your sixties for this, though. I think Clive Owen's still a little, he's still a little mm. vital. He could almost still play bonds, couldn't he? Clive Owen? You know? mm. Whereas we you also mentioned um, Liam Neeson. Well, do you know it's funny? I mean, I'm the biggest Neeson fan in the world, but I, I don't know if he looks like an old Etonian. I don't know if you'd buy him as an old Etonian, you mm. know, which I think there's got to be the guy who came from this world that's gone now and he's looking around yeah. and he absolutely yeah. doesn't understand the modern world. But I feel that Neeson fits in quite well, you know, like even though he's an older guy and everything, you kind of, you're like, yeah, you you, you get people, you're, cool, you're still kind of cool, you know? Mm. Whereas I think there's yeah. got to be that double cuffs and old school tie and all that look to to this character, I think, because he's got to be completely lost almost in the modern world, yeah. but he finds his mojo after he finds out he's got a brain tumor. Actually, I should say, you know, the concept of the thing is Britain's greatest ever spy suddenly finds out he's going to die. He's lost. He's done nothing for 20 years. He's ashamed of what he's done. Uh, some terrible things in the past too, as an MI6 agent. And he decides to kill everyone who deserves to die. And he knows where all the bodies are buried. So he knows the royal princes who've been abusing people. He knows about the corrupt presidents and prime ministers and popes and things. And he kills them all. He kills them all. So yeah. it's a ton of fun. It's very yes, on the nose as well. Yeah. Some of the people that he goes after. <laughs> Which, <laughs> some well, of the, some of the things I think you've got. never goes out of style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's it's terrific, and uh, it really lends itself to 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 being seen uh, on the screen. And also, you t- you touch on a lot of Bond tropes as well. I think, which is which is brilliant. You've got the um, you know the physically memorable henchman. You've got a, a gadget lair where you can pick up any gadget that can do anything. Um, so it's clear that from the reading it that yeah. you you really love but, this world, but but just different enough to make it not a direct link to it I, no. I actually find it hard to read things like this because I'm constantly just trying to pick it apart and go right that's that person that's that person well not, not it, a court case works. you don't want it to be a court yeah. case <laughs> yeah. yeah but at the same time you know you've got your pre-credit sequence you've got your even yeah. at the end of the pre-credit sequence there's a slightly misty psychedelic swirl in the water and everything you know you've you've got yeah. your exotic locations like you say a physically challenged henchman <laughs> you know so and, yeah. and then the baddie and the, the big boss at the end in the place where he feels safest with the spy coming into the place he feels safest. Do you know, it's funny. I mean, Kingsman touches on a lot of that stuff as well. And and a lot of the actors we talked about for Kingsman to play the Colin Firth role in Kingsman. Um, Matthew always says, oh, yeah, yeah, these were the people I planned all along. But obviously there's these discussions where it, there was loads of people to discuss before anyone accepted it. Um, but weirdly, they're all in that age group as well, you know, where who would be good for, for this. Um you know, there's a lot of really brilliant British actors in their sixties. Not so, yeah. not so many. You know, in their twenties and thirties, never. But that that sort of that was kind of the last of those British movie stars, wasn't it? Those guys who are about fifty-eight to sixty-eight. They're mm. really brilliant yeah. guys, like Gary Oldman and all that as well. You do have the opportunity to cast a a, a, a super spy in their prime as well uh, from the comic. Um, so you must have given that some idea, some thought as well. Yeah, somebody like Tom Hiddleston or somebody like that would be great. You know, somebody who's who's the somebody who doesn't feel like a copy of Bond, but has Bond's DNA in him. You know, like yeah. Um, and and Hiddleston's got that, but he's he doesn't feel. I always think Hiddleston's a, an unusual choice for Bond itself. He doesn't quite seem like Bond to me, but he feels almost Bond. But he's actually very interesting as well. And I think history hasn't been kind in some ways uh, to the Bonds because it's such a huge role, like Superman that it kind of overshadows the rest of your career. And some people are really brilliant actors who don't get a chance to shine in other things. I think Hiddleston, by not getting Bonds, could actually have a much more interesting career. Like, I think he could have 30 years of playing lots of different parts 
and he's maybe too uh too varied an actor to, to be bond as well you know so like uh but but he'd, he'd be great to be this guy's son i mean somebody like Hiddleston oh, yeah. would just be so bang on i i did a pee beside Hiddleston once i remember and uh <laughs> and, and, <laughs> wasn't expecting this <laughs> it was at a comic convention it was one of those things and I, I was i was aware that people were quite excited that Hiddleston was standing urinating beside everyone the, the first door movie was just about to come out and but they didn't want to ask for a f- selfie because he literally was standing urinating. So it was it was one of those very British moments, you know, where like, at what point do, do you wait till he shake? Is he, once he's, sh- he's shook, once he's washed his hands, once he's dried his hands, when do you do the photograph? And I, I saw this it's, cluster of men waiting behind him while he was urinating. Uh, it's not a scenario I've ever thought about happening. But <laughs> now, now you mention it, I think, yeah, I would be in the same position. There's that famous story, isn't there, of Jake Gyllenhaal at uh, Sundance. That, I think it was at Sundance where they got into a fight with someone who tried to get a photo of him in the toilet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you just got to wait. Just got to wait. Roger wouldn't have minded. No. <laughs> Do you know, I just I, wanted I, to touch on King... Go on, Mark. Sorry. I was just going to say, the, the only other famous person I've urinated beside was Will Ferrell once in a... It was in a studio meeting. I had a meeting and I nipped off to the toilet during the meeting and he was in there at the same time. And what I was surprised at is how tall he is. He's actually like six foot four or something. He's much taller than I expected. And I walked out of the toilet and said to the studio exec, I I just saw Will Ferrell in there. He's enormous. And he came out (laughs) right behind me and went, thank you very much. And just walked on. It was absolutely (laughs) amazing. It was so smooth. (laughs) It was a real Roger Moore line. It was perfect. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I just wanted to touch on Kingsman, Mark, um, because you mentioned it there. I, I saw, um, I don't know where I read it, but it, it, it said that Kingsman started life as a pub chat with Matthew Vaughan about how James Bond movies were really boring and, and serious and how we missed the funny Roger Moore ones. Yeah. Um, is that, is, was there something that tipped you both over the edge? <laughs> to make yeah, you, I think uh, it was. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was on the Kickass set, actually. There was a little pub near Elstree where Kickass was filmed, and there was some setup going on, and Matthew and I nipped off for a quick pint. And just we chat about everything. I mean, we, we gossip every day on the phone, you know. And Matthew said to me, oh, I'm so bored with Bond now, you know. It's like I miss Funny Bond and everything. We were talking about all that. And um, I, I said, Oh, I've got this idea for a Bond thing. And he said, I've got a James Bond origin idea. And I said, So do I, you know. And his was a, was a posh. James Bond's origin sort of thing, which I think is probably quite like the King's Man movie, you know? And mine's was actually, I wanted to juxtapose the two worlds, you know? So I was saying, like, I'd adapted it from this idea I had for Nick Fury. You know who Nick Fury is? You know, the spy yeah, in the yeah. Marvel movies? So my idea, this was years ago, like 1998, I pitched this thing to Marvel, which was Nick Fury taking on his young nephew, you know, and sort of training him up to be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of thing. And I kind of like that idea of somebody coming from the wrong end of the tracks, like Nick Fury came from Hell's Kitchen, you know, and that idea that he then gets trained up and becomes a super smooth spy, you know. So the ideas got blended just over time, over chats. And then Jane Goldman wrote, like, the most awesome screenplay and everything. It was just, it was one of those things where everything was perfect. It just couldn't have worked out better. And, um, you know, I loved the first film. I, I, I actually got paid more for the second and third films even though I had nothing to do with them, because I was off working at Netflix at that point, you know? Um, so the first one's the only one I really feel any real identity of, of me in, you know? Um, but I, I think it worked out really well. I'm really happy with that one. It's got that For Your Eyes Only style poster as well, hasn't it? I always remember that. That was Matthew's idea, actually. Matthew came up with that. There was a few, like, mocked-up versions um, uh, that he showed me, and I was like, that's so audacious. You know, the idea of going in through the gazelle's legs and everything is instead of bod adams his legs was, was so cool um and I, I there was a kind of mock-up poster that i didn't think would be the final poster and i actually saw it all the way through you know like uh it was it was almost a bit of an internal gag amongst us you know like whenever the screenplay was going about that was on the front of it you know for a while um but like uh it, it was brilliant when posters are kind of dull there the posters are usually a big close-up of somebody's face it's quite nice to have yeah. something that's just a little bit different isn't it they were really distinctive, those ones, with the with very very crisp and uh, clear images, weren't they? I thought those, they were really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. We won't hold you up for m- much longer. I just wanted to ask you, you you're obviously, um, you oversaw a lot of the Fox movies while you were um, w- working with them on their Marvel movies. If you were to do, uh, offered the chance to do something similar for Bond, because obviously we're coming into a new cycle with Bond, 
Yeah. Where would you start? What would your sort of advice be to the to the people looking to make the next bond? I think you've got to look at um, what works in the past and then try and figure out, you know, like wh- why was it exciting when this guy became James Bond? And it's because it's different from what came before. And Daniel Craig was very exciting. I mean, you, you remember it was enormous, the idea of like somebody who was a bit of a ginger, so a, a little bit smaller, a bit more squat looking and everything, you know, playing James Bond. It was. I remember when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman, it was all people talked about for like two months. Even though superhero movies weren't in vogue at the time, people were like, this, he's only five foot eight. How could he be Batman, you know? So so actually casting against what people are used to can be really interesting. So the idea of going funny again, I think, is is the way to go. And I know there'll be all the, you know, on Her Majesty's Secret Service purists, you know, listening to this. <laughs> you know, so I think that's the worst thing ever. But I, but I really, I'd love to feel excited about a Bond film again. Like, I went to see Batman a few weeks ago and I, I went almost kind of just because I felt I should, you know, and, and I feel like that a bit with, with Bond just now as well, where I, I had no joy in my heart at all going to see the new Bond film. You know, I just, I felt I had to, like everybody else had seen it. I thought, oh, I suppose I should go now too. And, you know, I'm sure there's nobody listening to this that hasn't seen it, you know, so in terms of spoilers, the death at the end, I, if I was collected, uh, connected up to a, an ence- electroencephalogram, you would not have detected one single change in my pulse or heart rate. Or you know, I, was like, I, I felt yeah. absolutely nothing at the end of that film. Yeah. And I've loved James Bond all my life, you know. So, I mean, Bond, Bond dying almost off camera and everything, you know, it's, it's just, it just felt so flat to me, you know. So, But everybody's ready, I think. People were ready for a new Bond five years ago, I think. Mm. Yes. I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd, I would just make it a great night out again going to see a Bond film. And I'd make it that when kids come out of the film, one, kids should go and see it. Same as Batman. Like the idea of a Batman film that nobody under 15 can go and see is preposterous, you know? So the idea of um, James Bond, I think, that an eight-year-old can't get in is ludicrous. So kids should come out of Bond wanting the car and wearing a holster under their school blazer again, you know? Like you should want to be you should want to be James Bond. I think that's so important, isn't it? Is that a common thing, the uh, holster under the school blazer? I'm sure we would have got sold off of that. In, Gla- in Glasgow, it's just survival. All you know? <laughs> oh, right, yeah, okay. <laughs> Are you thinking, would your preference be that we go back to that sort of one-shot film where there's no long-term storyline that's that's padding out, really just make them fun and in the moment? My God, yes. I, I would actually make it against the law to make a film over two hours now. As well, I think yeah. the, the, you, sh- you, sh- you should need a note from the president or something like that if you're going to make a film over two hours long. Like a Bond film should be about 155 and utterly self-contained so that if you watch yeah. the fourth one, the second one, the third one, and then the first one, it all makes perfect sense. And to me, that's good yeah. business as well. You know, like I, like I think the interconnected movie with two or three years between each film is the most, especially for a, a five or six movie uh, series yeah. is just preposterous. Harry Potter and all that stuff had the good sense to have a movie out every year, you know, but when you're waiting mm-hmm. three years between each one, it's crazy, or five years in the case of Bond. Yeah. Well, if you were to do a, a spin-off yeah. of one of the characters from any of the Bond films, yeah. who, who would you go for? None of them. Like, I, I would never <laughs> I would never do a <laughs> Like, the world does not need a Felix Leiter movie, you know, we don't need a Miss Murray Penny yeah. movie, we, we don't yeah. need Jaws, how he lost his teeth. You know, we don't, we don't need any of these things. It's hard enough every two and a half years to do a great James Bond film, you know? So I would just yeah. put everything into doing the best James Bond film every two to three years out there, you know? And never I've, do... I've had that same that. argument with these guys before, and I've said exactly the same thing. Yeah. We don't want origin stories from all of the extra characters. <laughs> Nobody cares, you know? It's like, it's, it's, what's weird is whenever, whenever you're obsessed with something or you're working on something... Everybody thinks that's what you want. Like a, a super fast example is I did a movie in 2008 called Wanted and it cost 70 million and it made 340 million, right? So the studio was like, we need more of these. And they said, uh, but Angelina Jolie dies at the end of the film, so we should make it a prequel and da da da. Nobody cares. Nobody cares where she came from. She died in that film. Yeah. Go and do something else. You know, so. And that's part of the charm of Bond, isn't yeah, it? You don't yeah. care. You don't know what these people are from. It's just, it's a character that exists in time. We love him, you know, and, and like Han Solo, you don't want to see him as a kid. You don't want to see him with his dad and all that stuff. You know, I think an icon should be intact. I, I think the minute you explain him away, you lose him. And that's what worries me with Amazon, because I hate the idea of a James, Bo- a young James Bond 
TV series, a middle-aged James Bond TV series, spin-offs of all the characters. Because I think the reason it's lasted six decades is because its scarcity gives it value. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Man, that sounded so wise. That sounded really. It wise. is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, Mark, because obviously you're in a similar boat. You've just um, you, you you've become part of this big sort of internet firm um, with all this money behind them. So for for you, it feels like they've it's it's allowed you a lot more creativity. So maybe hopefully with Eon, that's what they might get as well. Hopefully, um, <sighs> yeah. It's it's funny. Like Bond's a family business. Isn't it? Yeah. You know, and and whenever a family business gets bought over, it can go off the rails. You know, that's 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 my concern. You know, like I hope it retains what makes us love it, because the minute big American companies get their fingers in it, technology companies, they could destroy everything that makes it work. I think they've almost in the last few years destroyed. Last ten years, they've probably destroyed a lot of what makes Bond work for me. You know, and they're a bit embarrassed yeah. by. It. I mean, how many of these films start with? He's a dinosaur, you know. It's like, uh, you know, it's like he's not a dinosaur. He's actually like a really valid current character who everybody loves, you know. It's, and he's in his prime, you know. Um, yeah. So I, I, I hope they don't clean him up too much. I remember years ago there was a thing that was very popular in the nineteen thirties, and then popular with Roger Moore again um, in the sixties called The Saint, and Ian Ogilvy yeah. made it big in the seventies and eighties as well. And it was, I mean, that thing ran for six decades. It was huge. The, George Saunders did it back in the thirties. And the novels, Leslie Charteris' novels, were enormous. And then they cleaned them up. They brought them back, I think, in the 90s. And they made them eco-friendly. They made them really care about the environment. So he didn't smoke and he didn't have flash cars. He, he cycled everywhere. And he was utterly monogamous, you know. And everybody hated it. <laughs> you know? So, like, so I, I just thought, I hope nothing like that happens to Bond now that Amazon have got their hands on it. So if you, if it, if it was you, you want a Henry Cavill type, um, someone that can tell a joke um, and do the action. Well, you want five films. In, in an hour and a half. Yeah, well, and I'd, I'd give it an hour and 50, an hour and 50. If there's a really important scene, an hour and 55. <laughs> but I think it's funny because you can pretty much guess who's going to be Bond by their age. They're not going to cast a 28-year-old and they're not going to cast a 45-year-old because they want to get five films out of them and it takes two or three years to make each film. So 38 is about perfect and Cavill is so bang on that age that I think it would be weird almost for it not to be Cavill. I almost can't imagine who else they could pick. I mean, what about you guys? Have you have you got somebody in mind? Oh, many debates floating about. Um, I think we've, it's, it depends on how you think. We have a lot of discussions about the the angle that they should go with it mm -hmm. and uh there's a big thought that they should go period uh and take it back to like the 60s you know you're shaking your head at that one That's, the thing is purists love it you know but if you do if you do a period action movie you're struggling you know like, and even indiana jones was a successful period action movie but you have to remember it was set only 40 years after uh, 40 years prior to the the release so that's the equivalent mm -hmm. of now the 80s you know, so, yeah. so 1981 to Indiana Jones, it's actually just a generation yeah. and a half, you know? Mm. So so anything set before the 80s, you really struggle to get mainstream audiences to come in and watch. It's really hard. Because mm. I had pals who said, oh, I'd love to do a film noir Batman, which would look incredible, or a 60s set spy movie like Bond in the 60s. But see, trying to get especially under 25s to go and see something... You, you, I think especially when it's a genre thing, there's something quite interesting about action set before you know present day is a really hard sell like cinema's littered with things that didn't work you know like the phantom or the rocketeer and all these films that people have got a fondness for but they didn't make money dick tracy and everything there's something i don't know if it's maybe a a thing where you're kind of worried about the character on screen where you feel like he's not going to fall off that building because that was 1938 and he's probably fine now you know like it, that happened in the past Maybe something has yeah. to be super current for you to mm -hmm. to believe and get caught up in it, you know? So, I mean, I personally, yeah. I would love a 1963 set Bond movie, but I, I think I'd be very scared to invest $200 million in it. I, I was, yeah, it's always difficult to think about the age of these films and how far I go. I, I forget that uh, the 80s is a long, a long time ago now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think it's relatively recent. Even the 90s. I mean, I, I was on a train a little while ago. And uh, maybe five years ago, and I heard these uh, students talking about 90s night, and they said, oh, there's 90s night at the university, are you going? And they said, I have nothing to wear. And they said, just wear your mum and dad's old stuff. 
you know and that was nice <laughs> so you have to remember you know like the, the 60s is like your great grandfather if you're a current member of the audience <laughs> god yeah yeah, yeah. that's like, you, that's like us watching something set in the crimean war you know Oh. Yeah. yeah, and you, like I said, you can't get your Nokia product tie-ins either in the 1960s, yes. so uh, you're going to struggle. Well, League of, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was the, the, the big one where they spent a lot of money. I mean, that was an expensive movie, um, and it was set in Victorian times, and the big gadget they had was a car, you know, and everybody yes. was like, wow, you know, there's a car going by, but audiences were like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving the cinema. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> that was the movie that yeah. made Sean Connery quit acting. So uh, yeah. I know, I know, I know. How That's... sad. <laughs> well, let's. We won't keep you for any longer, Mark. But um, where where can people find you if they want to um, uh, keep up with what you're doing online? I know you've got well, a newsletter now. Yeah, if anybody wants to see a marketing department pretending to be me, they can catch me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and Facebook and Instagram. But meanwhile, I'll just be like watching something funny on youtube i wouldn't actually be the person replying to anyone you know but it's there if anybody wants to see it um and uh i have a newsletter you can sign up to if you go to my website it's mrmarkmiller.com and there's a sort of weekly newsletter i've always said like i would never write one unless there was something to actually talk about or something to promote or whatever you know because you don't want to just hear what i've had from a dinner and things like that you know so so there's usually about three a month or something like that and they're, they're kind of all right and they're free you know everything you have to sign up for now, Substack and all that. Like mines are free, so that, that's the big selling point. <laughs> and if people want to get hold of the podcast, guys, uh, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. And on the social media at jamesbond8z. That's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just want to say thank you so much to our guest, uh, Mr. Mark Miller. Mark, it's been an, a, a genuine honour having you on. Um, we're huge fans of your comics. Um, and yeah, just really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and, and talk about James Bond um, for an hour. So yeah, well, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me and have me back when we do the uh, live action version of King of Spies. We'll talk oh, about Well, we, we're coming down to set. We're on our way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it be great if we did it, did it with Brosnan? We're all out in the past with Brosnan. That'd be brilliant. Oh, don't. <laughs> don't. No, we're starting the, off now. We're starting the King of Spies podcast next, just so that we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it just leaves me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Thank you, Mark Miller. Thanks a lot. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.